In this particular video, I want to talk about how my narrations of the Sherlock Holmes stories proceed and what elements within them I like to highlight using The Adventure of the Speckled Band by Conan Doyle as an example. This has got to be one of the favorite Sherlock Holmes stories of all time. It's certainly one of my favorites. And let's take a look at some of the elements that we see again and again in a Sherlock Holmes short story and how we can find them in this particular story and especially focus on some of the representations of autism about Sherlock Holmes especially in connection with autism that we might be able to deduce, to use a Sherlockian term, from the writing of the story. Each Sherlock Holmes story starts with Watson describing the exceptionality of the case under scrutiny, and he does that in the first couple of pages, explaining how this story is different from others that he's told in the past. Then he introduces a sort of silly situation, Holmes waking Watson up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Holmes wants to give Watson the opportunity to listen to a client who's just shown up in quite a fit. And as usual, Watson is eager to comply, even though he has been woken up to his dismay uh, at an irregular time. Holmes's autism is introduced when the client comes into the room and makes her acquaintance with him. And she says that she is not shivering because she's cold, but she's shivering because of fear. And what we see Holmes do, and it's rather interesting, is that he goes out of his way to try to soothe her and try to calm her. In this section here where he says, You must not fear, said he soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. We shall soon set matters right. I have no doubt. Then, of course, he goes on to uh, diagnose her situation, or at least deduce how she came in from the station with his Sherlockian powers. But I want to return to this point where we see that he's very kindly to a client in distress, particularly a woman. And this is not something we often see uh, accompany an autistic character in a work of fiction. Usually autistic characters like Henry Higgins and Bernard Shaw's books, uh, is someone who is so totally out of touch with the needs of his fellow men that he is often uh, insensitive and doesn't seem to care one way or another about their feelings. But we don't see this with Holmes. And so then, of course, he starts deducing things about her, which have nothing to do with the case. Uh, but that's also a common feature of a Holmes story. I would uh, contrast this with the way Holmes approaches a client who tends to be haughty. For instance, in the Orange Pips short story, we have a client, John Oppenshaw, who is very, very brittle and very, very particular and precise in how he comes across to Holmes when Holmes first meets him. And so Holmes returns the favor, so to speak. He's as precise and nitty-gritty as his client is. So Oppenshaw says, I've come here to look for advice. And Holmes says, well, I can easily give you advice. 
And then Oppenshaw says, oh, but I mean, I want help. And Holmes says, uh, that may be a little more difficult to provide. And, and so on. And they have this, this colloquy or back and forth where uh, Oppenshaw is very particular and Holmes is the same way. It's almost as if Holmes is nervous because of Oppenshaw's manner. And so Holmes tries to take on the attributes of his client. But here he meets with a client who is nervous and upset and he tries to soothe her. So he's able to take himself out of the situation and relate to another person in a totally empathetic way. So the reason I single this out is because if Holmes is supposed to be autistic, he is being portrayed as a real autistic person. That is a fully rounded person, not a machine as Watson describes Holmes. And so this is a sign, I think, that Conan Doyle himself does not see Holmes the same way that Watson sees Holmes. To Watson, Holmes is a calculating machine. But to Conan Doyle, he is a much more deep and empathetic person and a much more fully rounded one. So uh, one of the things that's interesting about this story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, is that we really don't have any doubt from very early in the story who is the guilty party. Uh, the answer is Dr. Roylott, the stepfather of the very frightened client who is meeting with Holmes, Miss Stoner. She's frightened because her sister Julia has died in the middle of the night in the bedroom next to Miss Stoner's, and she wants to know why Julia died. And it just so happens that on the other side of Julia Stoner's bedroom is a bedroom that was occupied by Dr. Grimsby Roylott, who we learn very early is the bad guy of the story. He's a very mean person who is shown to be physically abusive to Miss Stoner. And uh, he is the leading suspect from the outset of the story in the death of Julia Stoner. And so there's very little doubt that he had something to do with her death, if not everything to do with her death. Uh, the question is, how did he do it? And how can Holmes help Miss Stoner prove that he did it so that her life can be saved, even though Julia's could not have been saved? We have a long dialogue, or actually monologue, on the part of Helen Stoner, where she explains what happened to Julia and uh, what their life was like living with this Grimsby Roylott. And it's kind of unusual because uh, Conan Doyle spends a great deal of time just letting Helen Stoner have her say. And Holmes does not interrupt very much in this fascinating story. Basically, the story is that uh, Julia Stoner came out of her room and grabbed on to Helen Stoner and said that a speckled band had come into her room during the night and had been responsible for her terror and her subsequent death within just a few minutes. And so the question is, what is this 
Speckled Band. So that is what she's telling in this story, and it goes on for some considerable amount of time. And Holmes just basically listens. So now uh, Helen Stoner says, well, it happened right after Julia was engaged to marry uh, somebody who would have taken her away and taken her inheritance away from Grimsby Roylott. And of course, Helen has the same inheritance. And she's also engaged to be married. So it seems like there is some danger uh, of what what happened to Julia happening to Helen, of course. And so what, what they have to do is try to figure out how did Grimsby Roylott do this? Did he work with a bunch of gypsies who were in the neighborhood? Or did he have some other hand in it that couldn't be deduced? In order to make Grimsby Roylott's guilt even more apparent, he has followed Helen to this meeting with Holmes. And after she leaves, he knocks on Holmes's door and introduces himself and comes across as about as evil as a man can possibly be. He demands to know what Holmes has been saying to Helen, what she's been saying to him, and then he accuses Holmes of being a meddler, a busybody, and a Scotland Yard jack in office. And Holmes uh, parries with this guy. He uh, acts coldly to him, which is appropriate, given the way Roylott's acting. And Roylott threatens Holmes by seizing a poker from Holmes's fireplace and bending it into a curve with his huge brown hands. See that you keep yourself out of my grip, he snarled. So this is sort of like a, a snidely whiplash character. And after he leaves, Holmes uh, picks up the steel poker and with a sudden effort straightens it out again. So that's a wonderful moment in this particular Holmes story. It's one of those reasons why this story has become such a favorite with fans of Holmes. And then Holmes says, fancy his having the insolence to confound me with the official detective force. Now, this is another example of Holmes's autism, in my view, because of all the things that might be of interest to Holmes, he's particularly taken by the fact that Roylott has associated Holmes with Scotland Yard, which is an insult to Holmes. He doesn't seem to care about all of the other insults that have just happened to him. Instead, he's concerned with this insult uh, associating him with Scotland Yard, which Roylott didn't even consider an insult. So that's, I think, a clue as to how Doyle is diagnosing Holmes. So Holmes and Watson go out to Stoke Moran, and of course, Holmes at first thinks that uh, the gypsies have broken into the home and has have uh, killed Julia Stoner, helping Grimsby Roylott in his evil ways. Uh, and Holmes has to admit that he jumped the gun there because the gypsies in town had nothing to do with the killing and he was uh, deducing a situation from inadequate facts. He said that that's a capital crime in one of his stories and he appears to be guilty of that here. 
but he eventually comes up with an explanation for why Julia Stoner was killed, even though she was in a locked room, just like Helen Stoner is in her bedroom, in a locked room. And there's no way that the readers could have deduced before Holmes what was going on, because Holmes becomes aware of various uh, features of the room which make it uh, porous, make it possible for Roylott in his room to introduce something deadly into Julia's room without being able to enter her room by the door. And that something, a combination of things, namely a ventilator between the two rooms, which doesn't ventilate but allows Roylott to have access to her room, the fact that the bed is nailed down to the floor so it cannot be moved, and the uh, dummy bell rope, which allows Roylott to slip something into the room that can move on its own and also kill on its own, namely a snake. And so there's no way that the reader could deduce all of that any sooner than Sherlock Holmes does. So in that way, it's somewhat of an unfair story. But this is a common feature of detective stories at all times. Uh, it is not always the case that the, the reader is provided with what the reader often wants, which is an opportunity to solve the case at least as quickly as Holmes does. I'm not sure that that is even remotely possible, given the way the story is structured. But it is ingeniously structured all the same, because everything seems to come together, especially the fact that Roylott has all of these strange pets, which a snake seems to be well in keeping of. So uh, he has a cheetah and a baboon, as is stated here, and uh, they turn up at one point in the story as well. Now, there is one part of the story that's quite interesting, and that is when Sherlock Holmes and Watson go to the Crown Inn to wait for the signal from Helen Stoner that she's safely in her room. She's no longer in the middle bedroom where Julia had resided, and she has gone to bed, and it's time now for Holmes and Watson to scramble into the window of this room, which Helen has left open, so that they can be there to see what kind of evil methods Roylott uses to get into that room where he assumes that Helen Stoner is still spending the night. Helen has moved in to her former bedroom next door, which was under repairs, and so Holmes and Watson have to get back to that place by going from the Crown Inn through the grounds of the estate and then climb into the window. So we're at the Crown Inn. Holmes says, this is our signal. And then he says, there was little difficulty in entering the grounds for unrepaired breaches gaped in the old park wall. Now, this is a mistake by Doyle because he says that the cheetah and the baboon have been given the run of the place. They are able to go every which way on the grounds of the Stoke Moran property. 
Well, if that's the case, how can there be unrepaired breaches in the old park wall? Wouldn't the cheetah and the baboon have been able to escape and to menace the neighboring community? Uh, evidently, according to Doyle, everybody in town is terrified of this cheetah and baboon. And uh, so Doyle makes this mistake, which is necessary because he wants to allow Holmes and Watson to sneak into the grounds of the estate. So he has to say that there are unrepaired breaches in the park wall. Well, that raises the question, how come the baboon and the cheetah are not able to get out if Holmes and Watson can get in? But uh, that's never explained. It's just something interesting that uh, shows a flaw in the uh, narrative. Something Sherlockians have found it enjoyable to point out. Okay, so Holmes and Watson, they sneak into the room. It's a very suspenseful scene because uh, they have to whisper with each other. They can't even have a light in the room, so they can't even see each other. And the reader can imagine what it must have been like waiting for something to come out of the ventilator and not knowing what it could possibly be. And of course, it turns out to be a, a snake from India, one of the most deadly poisonous snakes in the world, uh, something that looks like a speckled band, but turns out to be a swamp adder from India. And Holmes thrashes it with his cane. It loses its snakish temper, and it goes crawling back into the other room where it bites Grimsby Roylott. And within 10 seconds, he, of course, dies. And so the story is wrapped up fairly well uh, we have here Holmes explaining that he jumped the gun on his guests and wrongly attributed the crime to a group of gypsies, and he should have waited for more data, as he's constantly saying in his story. And as we always see in the Holmes stories, he explains why he was able to deduce the solution to the mystery. And he wraps up the story, or at least Doyle wraps up the story, in the words of Sherlock Holmes. As I said, it's one of the most popular of all the Holmes stories, and for good reason. And you can listen to this story on my podcast, Audibly Speaking, at audiblyspeaking.com, where I have narrated the entire story. I hope you enjoy it.